The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. If we've not met before, I am Dave, one of the pastors here at TBC, and it's really good to see you all this morning. And uh, as Chase mentioned earlier this morning, uh, we are having an annual survey today. And uh, so this really helps us understand our people better as we lead you all in surrender community and mission. And so at some point, uh, just fill it out at some point during this today's service. And uh, we are posting in the comment section for our live stream audience. You guys can scroll down to the comments and see an online version of that. You can take it right now online. And uh, just remember, when you all fill it out, there's a backside to it as well. And uh, so if you don't fill out the whole thing, you fail the test. That's how that works. All right. So um, thanks for helping us out with that. It's really helped our leadership team as we lead our church in these different things um, that we talk about each week. So uh, we are continuing our series in Exodus. This is Exodus part four, and we're going to be in chapter four today. And uh, we've been talking about the life of Moses and how he spent 40 years in the Midianite wilderness after he fled from Egypt. And there is a, this is a part of the Moses story that always reminds me of a movie. Now, it's not the one that you might be thinking of, but it's the movie The Karate Kid. And here's why I say that. If you, remember, if you recall that movie, if you, if you haven't seen that movie yet, you've had 40 years, all right? I'm not trying to spoil it for you, but you've had your time to watch it. And, uh, but if you recall that movie, Daniel wants to learn karate, so he goes to Mr. Miyagi, and he asks him to teach him karate. And Mr. Miyagi has these strange tasks for him at first, things like waxing the car and painting the fence and sanding the deck. And he's wondering, how is this connected to karate? Then later on, he finds out it's very connected. He was learning those motions, those mus- the muscle memory of those motions of defensive moves in karate as he was doing those tasks for Mr. Miyagi. And so I think about the life of Moses as he spends all this time in the wilderness, I'm sure for 40 years, wondering what God is trying to teach him as he's kicking rocks and watching after sheep. And yet you realize at, the, at this part of the story that as he goes back and is going to lead the Israelites, that leading sheep is a lot like leading people because they don't always do what you want them to do. So as he was spending all this time in the wilderness, thinking his life lacked purpose and meaning, all the while God is showing him principles he can learn from on what it's going to take to lead the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. So back in chapter 2, we see Moses is this bold and brash man who kills an Egyptian. But in chapter 4, he's an older man now. He's in his 80s, and he's lost all that bravado. He's now a broken man, and he feels like a failure, most likely. He was raised in the palace of Egypt, but now he's tending sheep over in Midian, And Egyptians were raised to despise shepherds. And so in chapter 3, God starts this conversation with him through a burning bush. And today is part 2 of that conversation. So look at Exodus chapter 4, verse 1. And we'll go to verse 9. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. And the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? And he said, A staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, 
the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside of his cloak. When he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. So Moses is insecure because his last interaction with the, with the Hebrew was when one of them called him out for killing an Egyptian. This is why he fled over to Midian for the last 40 years. So Moses believes that he has, has, has no credibility with the Hebrew people. He's been gone for 40 years. And so if someone shows up after being gone for that much time, and now they're saying, you know, God spoke to me out there in the wilderness through a burning bush. They're going to likely say, really, can you, can you prove that? Can you give evidence for something like this happening? And so as we're going to see throughout this story, Moses is using the doubts of the Hebrews as a smokescreen for doubts about himself. But God, in his grace, he meets the doubter where he is, and he gives him these three signs he can perform before the people so they'll have faith and believe. So two of the signs God performs right there on the spot, so Moses will know this is really from God. And so God tells Moses, he says, Moses, throw your staff on the ground, and it turns into a serpent. And if a snake appeared out of nowhere, we'd probably react just like Moses. I think of many years ago before we had kids, uh, my wife and I had just moved into our house here in Temple, and we had had some rat problems under our deck in our backyard. And so we, um, we started setting some rat traps and some rat poison in these black boxes out there behind the house, right next to the house. And my wife is an animal lover, and she wanted to make sure that the squirrels couldn't get into this rat poison. And so I had to reassure her. So we walk outside at night, and I've got a flashlight and we're walking over there by the air conditioning unit so I can show where I put this rat poison. And as I'm taking a step toward the air conditioning unit and the illumination of the flashlight, uh, one foot from my foot, there is a snake coiled up, ready to strike. And so I think I just, in a split moment, I think I had like a, a 48-inch vertical. I think I clotheslined my wife, jumping back. And so you know if a snake appears like that out of nowhere, you don't wait around to see if it's poisonous. You just react. And this is kind of what Moses does. He just runs away from the snake. And then God tells him, now I want you to move toward the snake. Now don't just move towards it, but you're going you're, you're to pick it up by its tail. Now if you're going to pick up a snake, you never pick it up by the tail we know that guy many years ago, that guy, Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter, used to always do that, but no one else should ever do that. So Moses is probably thinking at this point, no, 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 God, you're doing this wrong. You're supposed to take a big stick, hold its head down, grab it by the neck. Now, where's my staff? Oh, wait, my staff is the snake. Now, Moses somehow overcomes this fear, and he moves towards the snake. He picks it up by the tail and it turns back into a staff. 
Now, these miracles are not just random tricks to wow Moses and to wow the Israelites in the future. They are significant in two ways. First, the snake, specifically a cobra. We're not sure what kind of snake this was. It could have been that. It could not have been that. But the cobra symbolized Egypt's power. So Moses having the confidence given to him by God to grab this snake by the tail will be the same confidence he will need to look Pharaoh in the eye and say, let my people go. God is showing Moses, there's no need to fear this snake, but there's also no need to fear the power of Egypt symbolized by that snake. Secondly, notice a pattern with the miracles. I heard Matt Chandler say it this way. God wants Moses to obey first, and then God shows up and reveals his power. He wants him to to move towards the snake and pick it up, and then God turns it into a staff. And Moses might be tempted to say, okay, God, I'm not touching that snake until it's dead. Can you kill it first, and then I'll pick it up? You can turn a dead snake into a staff. And so this little story about the snake is a microcosm for the rest of Exodus. Because God wants Moses in faith to move towards the danger, and then God reveals his power. This is a pattern we're going to see for the rest of the book. He moves, Moses moves towards Egypt, then God shows his power. The Israelites are going to move toward the Red Sea, and then God parts the waters. Sometimes we sit back and we demand that God show his power first, and then we'll obey. We do that in our walk with Christ. We do it in our families and our relationships. No, God, I need to see you move first. You move first. You do your thing first in power. Then I'll see how it goes, and then I'll decide to obey. But we see this pattern in Exodus. No, God wants obedience first, and that's when he shows up and reveals his power. For the second sign, God says, Moses, put your hand in your cloak When he pulls it out, he has leprosy on his hand, but when he puts it back in, he's healed. Many of our fears are ultimately about death, and God shows that Moses, he has authority over death and doesn't have to fear it. The third sign is related to the Nile River. Whenever we think of certain nations, we associate things with their identity. Nothing symbolized the identity of Egypt more than the Nile River. It was everything to them. The Nile would bring nourishment to an otherwise desert and parched wasteland. They called it the father of life. Their gods were associated with the Nile. They would worship the Nile. So God shows he has ultimate control over the only source that gives Egypt this national identity. So this third miracle was to be held in reserve in case the first two didn't convince the people And so Moses had heard from God in the wilderness. So what theme do we see in these first few verses? We see this, God's grace for those who doubt. If the people don't believe, then throw down your staff on the ground. If they still don't believe, then put your hand in your cloak. If they still don't believe, then pour some water from the Nile out on the ground and watch it turn into blood. So we see God's grace for the doubting Israelites back in Egypt. We see God's grace for the doubts of Moses, and God meets them right where they are, and he reveals his power. 
Now, these are amazing miracles, but they are not the stories that Israel would tell future generations. They wouldn't tell their grandchildren, you know, Moses, we, we, Moses saw God turn a staff into a snake. That wouldn't be the story. The story they'd tell their grandchildren later on would be the story of how God stomped on the head of the snake on their way out of Egypt. That's the story they would tell eventually. And these miracles foreshadow those stories. Look at verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Now, this is a, I think, a comical response from Moses. He says, I have never been eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to me. Now, when has God spoken to him? Just now. I know it's only been five minutes, but I'm still not good at speaking, God. And God could say, well, listen, you're, you're doing okay. You're doing just fine talking back to me. I think you're going to be okay. If he can speak this boldly before God, then he'll be able to stand and speak boldly before Pharaoh. Look at verse 11. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I'll be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. So back in Isaiah 6, when the prophet Isaiah hears from God, he says, here I am, send me. But Moses says, here am I, please send somebody else. And so God starts questioning Moses. He says, you cannot, you say you can't speak well. Well, who do you think made that mouth, Moses? You think I didn't know that about you? Notice what God does not do. He does not try to reassure Moses. If someone we know says, I'm just not a good singer, what do we do? Well, well, that's not true. You're, You're a great singer. Even if they're not, we still say it. And so God doesn't do this. He doesn't try to reassure Moses. No, 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 you're a great speaker. He didn't do that for Moses. So Moses is fearful of a couple things. He's fearful of leading the people, and he's fearful of speaking in front of the people. I think we can all relate to that. In 2014, Chapman University in California conducted a study about America's top fears. And there were some things you'd expect on the list. There was fear of flying, fear of needles, fear of drowning, fear of clowns, you know, the usual suspects. This was some serious research, people. And the top three things, though, were interesting. Number three was fear of bugs and snakes. Number two was fear of heights. But can you guess what number one was on the list? Fear of public speaking. This is America today, but if you go back several thousand years to Moses, one of his biggest fears is standing in front of a crowd, having to lead those people, and having to speak publicly to them. We don't change all that much. So why would God pick someone like Moses? As we'll see later, God seems to agree with him that he's not a great speaker. God even recommends Moses' brother Aaron to help. He says, I know that your brother Aaron can speak well. This begs the question, 
why didn't God choose him instead? We see a pattern throughout Scripture, and it's that God has a way of working through our weaknesses. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul writes, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the, that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So Paul uses a metaphor to describe the message of Christ and those proclaiming that, the message of the gospel. And he compares the message about Christ to this treasure, this valuable treasure that's hidden in a jar of clay. And the jars of clay are like those people that proclaim the message of the gospel. So the message is more valuable than the man or woman that are, that's communicating it. I think we get that reversed sometimes. So a jar of clay, if you picture it, it's, it's usually, it's brittle, it's, it's dusty, it's broken, it's not that attractive. That's us. That's Paul. And that's Moses. God's ability shines brightest through our inability. So Moses doesn't realize this yet, but this is exactly the kind of person that God wants. Somebody who understands their inadequacy, so they need to depend upon God. If we're picking Moses, we're picking Charlton Heston, someone who's big and powerful and strong and a booming voice, you know, let my people go. That's who we pick. But that's not who God picks. God actually picked Moses. He didn't fit that description. You know, many years ago, um, it was back in, I think, 1996-97, I said yes to a ministry opportunity here in Texas. A friend of mine, a youth pastor, said, hey, come on down for a year and intern at this church. And so um, they work with high school kids, and I, I said, I'm, I can do that for a year. And on the phone, though, I had a conversation. I said, listen, I'm willing to do all kinds of things, willing to do behind-the-scenes stuff, willing to do small groups, whatever it might be. But i got to make a deal with you. Don't ever ask me to preach a sermon. And he said, that's fine. So I come down. I was 19 years old, moved to Texas, and I'm working with these students in, uh, in Arlington. And, uh, and I was doing some things in the ministry for the next year, 18 months or so. And uh, we have a ski trip coming up. And we're going to go to Breckenridge, Colorado with these high school students. And, you know, it's not enough to just enjoy the beauty of God's creation. you got to have some sermons to make it spiritual in the evenings on the ski trips, right? And so he decides he wants us to have these uh, three sermons, uh, back-to-back nights. And he asked me to do the first sermon on the ski trip. And I said, listen, that's not really the deal we had worked out. Not sure what you're thinking about. And so he talks me into this. And he said, listen, Dave, this is a chance for you to... You're fearful, but it's a chance for you to have some faith that God can somehow find a way to use you. And so I I decided for the next two months, I was just feeling anxious and worried about this endeavor the next two months or so. And it's amazing how when someone asks you that for the first time, how just in your body, you feel just shot through with anxiety and worry of this coming date that you have to do this thing. And so we're on the ski trip, and the first day I'm on the slopes, can't even think about enjoying that because I'm thinking all about that night, that sermon, that first sermon I have to give. And so the night I get, I get through it, have no clue what I even talked about that evening. And uh, all I remember is afterwards, I told myself, I'm glad that's over with because I'm never doing that again. And we see how that worked out. Now, two years ago, I'm back in Breckenridge with some friends, went on a little snowboard trip with some friends here, and I saw that building 
that we stayed in. And we had those meetings at night. And just in a quiet moment by myself, I just went in that building. I recognized everything in the lobby, and I went up the stairs where that meeting room was located. And I just kind of had this quiet, still moment of worship with God as he humbled me those years ago. And I, I sensed him pressing on me, listen, don't ever lose that feeling of inadequacy. Because growing in our gifts should never lead to outgrowing our dependence upon God. I think this is our temptation. It'll be the temptation of Moses throughout the coming years as he leads Israel out of Egypt. He will always have this burning bush moment to remember how he once trembled in fear and how desperate he was before God. And so Moses gets half the formula right. He was inadequate to lead in his own strength. But he also failed to understand this idea that Paul would communicate many years later in 2 Corinthians 12 where Paul writes, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so the power of Christ may rest upon me. So Moses thought his weakness meant that he could say no to God. He didn't realize that God wants him to to boast in his weakness so God's power can work through him and in spite of him. I think for us, we cannot allow fear to dictate what we will and won't do for God. So do the things that scare you. God makes available to Moses all that he will ever need, does the same for you and I as well. Because fear can lead to faith moments. I don't think you can even have a growing faith without some fear mixed in. Look down at verse 14. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be, he'll be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be your mouth, and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand the staff, with which you shall do the signs. So Moses keeps on just throwing these excuses back at God, and now God's angry with him. So Moses does not have a speech problem. He has a, an obedience problem. He's dressing up his disobedience with the clothing of incompetence. He's saying, I cannot, but it's really, I will not. And I think that you and I do the same thing. We often will dress up our disobedience with the clothing of, God, I just, I just can't do that. I'm just not gifted enough, not smart enough. I can't, I can't pull that off. And so once again, look at the grace of God. Even though he's angry, he shows grace to Moses by offering his brother Aaron as his right-hand man. And so Moses says, send someone else. And God says, okay, I'll send Aaron, but I'm still going to send you. And God says, I'll be your speech writer. It's not a bad gig. God is your speech writer. I'm going to give you the words, Moses. Just have to say them. I'm going to summarize for you verses uh, 18 and 23 to save some time. So Moses goes to his father-in-law, Jethro, seeking his blessing 
to return to Egypt, and Jethro gives that blessing. And now in verse 21, God reminds Moses to do these miracles in front of Pharaoh. And then God says, but I will harden his heart, Pharaoh's heart, so that he will not let the people go. Now, it's a concept that we will see throughout the book, the idea of Pharaoh hardening his own heart, the idea of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. I don't have time to give it full treatment today, so we'll come back to it later in the series. But while they're on the way to Egypt, there is this strange and awkward story that takes place in verse 24, and it will make you feel very uncomfortable. Are you ready? All right, verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him, meaning Moses, and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah, Moses' wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Well, it's getting late and looks like we're out of time. So listen, there's a lot going on here in these few little verses, and a lot that we don't know. It, it kind of seems like we're missing some pieces of the, of the story here, like what's, what's really happening behind the scenes. But they're on the way to Egypt, and somehow God shows up and tries to kill Moses. And not sure what this looked like, but Zipporah is seeing something take place that would depict this to her. So why is God so angry at Moses? Well, it appears that Moses has not fully obeyed the covenant established by God with Abraham back in Genesis, because the sign of that covenant was circumcision, and Moses had not circumcised his son Gershom. Now, this might not seem like a big deal to us. This is a big deal to God. It was a distinguishing mark of God's people. It was proof that they belonged to God. So within the covenant, there is grace And life and outside the covenant is judgment and death. In Genesis, when God gives it to Abraham, he says, if someone chooses not to have this right of circumcision done to themselves or their family, then they are to be cast out from the people. That's how serious God took this. And so God had drawn a line, and that line still exists today. We learn four things in this strange little story. First, we see more faith in Zipporah, his wife, than in Moses. She seems to understand the covenant better than Moses does, and she's the Midianite. And she intervenes and saves the life of Moses. We also learn here that if Moses is going to lead the nation, he first needs to learn to lead his family. He's not led his family well in the ways of the covenant, and he has raised his son more like an Egyptian than a member of God's people. It's a great reminder for us, whatever situation you find yourself in, if you're in ministry or just working in the business world, before you become a good leader here or out there, you've got to be a good leader in your family and to lead your family spiritually. And that's what Moses was not doing here. Third, Moses is obeying God externally. He's on his way to Egypt. He's on his way. He's obeying God on the outside, but his heart still isn't right. God wants him fully devoted. Not just, right, not just some right actions, but God wants a heart that's right before him. And that's, what not, that's not where Moses is yet. 
I think for you and I, we do that sometimes. We obey externally, but our hearts are still far from God. And then fourth, as strange as this story is, it foreshadows Christ and the gospel. See, God gives Moses this firsthand experience of salvation. Before his wife springs to action, Moses is under the wrath of God, just like us apart from Jesus. But then God's wrath is is turned away, propitiated, satisfied by the blood of the circumcision. Similarly, before we surrender to Christ, we are under God's wrath because of our sin. And just like Moses, we have failed to keep God's law, and the only way to be saved from eternal death is through an act of blood. And this is what Jesus provides for us on the cross. So for us, the sign of the covenant is no longer circumcision, but now it's baptism. In Colossians 2, Paul makes these connections. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him. So baptism now becomes the sign because the picture of cleansing through shed blood has been fulfilled in the blood of Jesus. There is safety in the blood, just like there was for Moses. Look at verse 27. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God, and he kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. And so as God appears to Moses, he appears to Aaron and tells him to meet Moses in the wilderness. He goes out to meet him at the mountain of God, and they haven't seen each other in 40 years. What a joyous, happy family reunion that must have been. And Moses shares with him all that God had said, and they go back to Egypt together, and they gather up all the elders of Israel. And look at verse 29. It says, Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshiped. So early in the story, God tells, he says, perform these signs if the people don't believe. It says here he performed the signs so we can assume they didn't believe initially. So again, what do we see? We see God's grace for those who doubt, God's grace for those who question. So Moses performs these signs and the people believe just as God said it would happen and his fears were unfounded. So what is the response of the Israelites? Well, they, it says they bow their heads and they worship. Now listen, their circumstances haven't changed that much. They're still under affliction. But just the knowledge that God sees their suffering is enough for them to bow and to worship. Just the knowledge that God had seen and heard their affliction is enough for them to worship God. So is that true of us? Is it true of me? Is it true of you? Is the knowledge that God sees and that God knows, is that enough for us to still worship him? 
God, we are grateful for the story of Exodus. God, how you worked in someone's life, Moses' life, to bring about your glory and the liberation of your people. God, thank you for reminding us that it's not about us. It's not about the person, but about you and your glory and your praise. Can we pray for anyone that's sitting here this morning that might be having some questions and doubts, whether they be Christ followers or not, yet Christ followers, that you would meet them where they are, knowing that we can look at the ultimate evidence of who you are, which is the resurrection. We can put our faith and trust in you because of your resurrection, Father. We pray this in your name. Amen.